So the 2021 Six Nations is finally over, but not before another brilliant, dramatic match in Paris, Scotland beating France to hand the title to Wales. Was this the best Six Nations ever, as Stephen Jones suggested in the Sunday Times? It looks like World Rugby will finally fund proper professional Pacifica teams in Super Rugby. Will it be enough to redress the balance between Tier 1 and Tier 2? And what are the implications for the rest of the global game? And Europe is back at the weekend. We'll preview the Champions Cup last 16. This is The Ruck. I'm Lawrence Delalio, and joining me today are Alex Lowe, Owen Slot, and our special guest, this week, Mark Evans. Good morning, gentlemen. Mark, if I could uh, start with you. Um, wonderful weekend of rugby. I mean, what, what were your highlights? Well, the France-Scotland game was a belter, wasn't it? I still cannot quite work out what Doulan thought he was doing in the 81st minute when they couldn't get a bonus point and he, all he had to do was kick it two yards into touch. But it, it was a magnificent game. Um, I think the French got a little bit caught a little bit between two stools about should we win it first and then think about the you know it just it was a little bit messy difficult conditions though but Scotland all credit to them I thought they'd been a been played well most of the tournament and they've got some monkeys off their back haven't they one in the last year they've won away in Wales they've won in Twickenham they've won in Paris and they're doing it without using the same thin 15 17 players like they have done traditionally they're they're it's a very tight Six Nations. That's why it's been such a good tournament. With the unfortunate exception of Italy, you, you wouldn't say there's much between all five teams. We could we could do a pod one day on on just solely on most stupid things you've seen on a rugby pitch. And Bryce Doolan would be quite near the top, wouldn't he? I have seen it done once before. Ben Botica did it for Quinns against Northampton when all he had to do was kick it over the dead ball line. But he decided yeah. to go for touch and miss, and that was the game. I'll tell you the one thing he didn't do was go and go and see uh, Sean Edwards after the game. <laughs> 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 I'd, be very, I'd be very surprised if he's managed to bump into him at all, actually, if he cares for his life. Owen, going from the uh, the most high-profile game to the one that you chose to go and watch over the weekend, as, as your writer's privilege as the chief correspondent in the, in the Times, where, you, where were you, about 200 metres from your house or something? Was it Richmond against Saracens? Yeah, no, no. some people um, have wrongly assumed that I chose to go to Richmond against Saracens because... The commute was sort of almost shorter than from my bedroom to my to the kitchen, uh, but that'd be very unfair. Uh, the, I, I went to I, I went out to professional interest to see what it looked like to see Saracens, the recently European champions, play against a completely amateur side. Oh, actually, they're not completely amateur side because Richmond did have one one full time player who was their a reserve hooker, who was a twenty one year old academy player at um, at Harlequin. So um, I, I thought that was really interesting to to go and cover. I think it's only right that we treat our readers to to, to gifts like that, so that, that they that they rarely get. I mean, the Telegraph wasn't there, the Guardian weren't there. You know, other newspapers don't look after their readers like we do, and so um and, and so it was only right that we did that. Talk us through the game while while you were there. I mean, I'm assuming you watched parts of it. <laughs> um, the game was fascinating because you you do wonder when you see that you're going to sort of be watching through your fingers. Is it going to be? Just one of those painful games like watching Italy play in the Six Nations every week. How completely are they going to get destroyed? And, and really, that didn't happen. Brilliantly, Richmond went 3-0 up after four minutes. Um, and then they got so so excited with themselves that given, an, given another penalty um, about 50 metres out, five minutes later, they tried to kick that as well and, and came up about 10 metres short. But they managed, to help, they managed to hold on to the lead till about, what was it, I think the... 29th minute when Jamie George 
um, uh, England and, and British Lions, sorry, British and Irish Lions. God, I'm offending a lot of people with that at the moment. Jamie George scored a try, and um, and, then, and then Saracens did 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 slowly pull away, and the kind of things you expected, like collisions and scrums and stuff, started going increasingly their way. It was 32 points to three in the end, but 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 mm. uh, Richmond held held their heads high. Yeah, fantastic. And Alex, I mean, we're, we're going to just do a quick Six Nations review, obviously, just to remind. All our listeners, Scotland's victory in Paris, of course, allowed Wales to win the Six Nations title. So France's search for a Six Nations championship goes on and on. England, well, finished fifth, uh, one place above Italy. But uh, Alex, just give us your sort of summation, really, just in, in a couple of sentences for each team, where, where, where the championship kind of went. Well, I guess one of the things that interested me, the headline on a piece that Ian McGeekin wrote in the, in the Telegraph, which was along the lines of, Wales were deserved winners, but France were the best team, which seems on the surface kind of contradictory. But then that was exactly what we said last year, that England won the title, but France were actually the best team. And I, I think that's still what our sort of emotional sense is that there's this, this wonderful, wonderfully attractive France team that is, that is growing and growing. And I listed you know, my top three games of the, of the championship and, and France were, were in all of them, um, as I, I expect everyone would would probably have the, the same list. Um, but, you know, Wales themselves accepted that they, they had the, uh, the rub of the green a couple of times early in, in the championship, but I don't think you can win the Six Nations without being consistently good. And, and, and that, that's what's so intriguing about it for me. And, and Mark hit the nail on the head earlier. It's been the, the greatest Six Nations championships are the ones where there is no Grand Slam. And we had this circle, as you talked about last week, uh, Lawrence, of everyone beating everybody other than Italy and Sam Warburton was on our on our pod at the very start of the championship saying listen they don't deserve their place in the championship and sadly they've done nothing to convince us otherwise they've gone backwards I mean they've we, we, they've missed Jake Pledry obviously but they they've gone backwards Scotland I think pretty harsh to, to, to finish fourth where they did given the performances but France although they didn't win the title were just wonderful to watch for me. Mark I mean the I remember when, when Warren Gatman came in to start coaching Wales with Sean Edwards, they won a Grand Slam. I think they won two in the first three years. Is there a feeling that France have, have missed an opportunity, not just this year, but, but last year as well? Because they are the coming team. There's no doubt about that. But they, they have actually blown the opportunity to win two titles in the, in the first two years of, the, of their championship. Is that, is that a little bit unfair, do you think? No, I think it's a little bit unfair. They remind me a bit of the, of the team you were in, Lawrence actually, that, that England team of the late 90s, early noughties, who took quite a long time to translate when they were, from memory, they were clearly the best team in the championship for, for quite a while. Mm. But it took them a little while to ice it. And, and I think that's where France are at the moment. I think they are in a very tight championship and accepting that it'll always be hard to win for them in Twickenham and Cardiff and Dublin, and maybe even Murrayfield now, is so tight. They are the best team, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to win it every year, but I think they will. It's a quite a young side. The management and the coaching looks pretty stable and together, which is a, an important thing for France, because that's not always the case. And I'd be surprised if they didn't win it in at least one of the next two years. I'm not sure they'll do a slam. I think that's looking really difficult at the moment in some that there used to be a time you looked at and thought well if i've got my harder games at home and the easier ones away 
there's a real opportunity there for a slam. I, I honestly don't think any of the teams can look at it like that at the moment because where are the easy home games other than the one we're always talking about? Do we actually think that France um, improved year on year from last year? I mean, last year they 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 sort of we, we effectively thought they sort of came from nothing and were just brilliant so quickly. So if they if they were on if they continued on that same trajectory, they they would be um, World Cup winners, even though there wasn't a World Cup this year. They were that good. I, I kind of feel they plateaued. They didn't dominate long periods of games like they did in in uh, the previous um, year. And the final game in Scotland, in particular, they they started to look a bit more French than usual and started doing stupid things. Not just Doulan at the end, but they didn't quite have their heads around what they were trying to do. Well, I think I mean the first first year's championship, obviously, you know, they one sending off cost them the title, didn't it? Cost them the Grand Slam. Mm. I, do, I do think they would have held on for that, and I think they've learned that to be the you know to be the best side in the world, you need discipline. The COVID saga unraveled for them really um you know i thought they left ireland as you say mark having not played brilliantly but but won for the first time in a long time and and uh, you know whilst good old bernie managed to sweep it all under the under the carpet very neatly i think it, it had much more of an impact on them than possibly people think in terms of players and and it's been difficult six nations for everyone you know we'll get on to england in a second and quite why england decided to have such a strict COVID bubble compared to every other country, I think certainly tied Eddie Jones with one hand behind his back in terms of players he could pick and et cetera, et cetera. But um, Alex, for you, uh, there were some standout players. Naturally, everyone's picking their Lions 15s and there were players that will go on that tour. I mean, we can't pick any Frenchmen, sadly, otherwise we'd probably pack it with a few. But um, I mean, who were the, who were the stand? I mean, Anton Dupont, you know, was, was outstanding again. I thought uh, Hamish Watson had an outstanding championship, as did Falatau. I mean, who really stood out for Ty Byrne was another one that really came forward. Uh, it's going to be an interesting selection, isn't it, for Warren Gatland and his coaches? I agree. You touched on on the, the French players that caught your eye, and and, and the, the, you mentioned Fiku, who I thought was outstanding all, all championship, um, and Dupont, obviously. I think Charles Olivant and Gregory Aldrit are just. Um, we, we talk about the, how, how the, the management of that French team went, seemed to go a bit wild around COVID, but the leadership on the field, particularly mm. from those two, I think is, is enormous and, and is what will drive them forward over the next couple of years. Outside of France and, and with, the, with the Lions, look at it. I, um, I, I think Hamish Watson, mm. I, I thought previously he'd, he'd make the trip. I certainly should make the trip now. Uh, he was absolutely outstanding for Scotland, all championship. I thought Robbie Henshaw for Ireland really stood up. He went on the last Lions tour, didn't quite look like he was going to get in the test team, got injured. I think he's now a real front runner to play in the, in the test team. And Ty, Ty Byrne has played himself onto the trip. And, and to, it was great to see Toby Falatau really back and sort of dominating. And I think he'd be, he'll be the number eight again. I don't, in some ways, I don't think there'll be enormous changes to the, the starting 15 from the, the third test in, in Auckland in 2017, when it actually comes down to it. But, but a few have really thrust themselves into the mix. And, and, uh, and Hamish Watson is on the plane. Tyg Byrne, for me, definitely. And, um, and, and, and Falatau um, nailed the number eight spot in my, in my team. If I yeah. throw one more in, I think, be, I think Tyg Furlong had an absolutely outstanding. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I, agree. I agree, Mark. And actually, on, on your point about Mako, I thought just as Tyg Furlong really stepped up and... I was um, helping Alex Corbusiero write his sort of guide to the dark arts, which we ran um, every weekend. And 
we were looking in depth at, at how Ireland scrum and and they they use the Saracens model of uh, the back five all start on their knees and it's really it's given them incredible solidity Andrew Porter who had binding issues in the autumn suddenly looked um, picture perfect then Ty Furlong comes in and is outstanding and that leads me on to what I was going to say about Mako which is I just wonder whether they'll look at Mako World Cup final or Mako against Ty Furlong and just start to wonder worry about his scrummaging against the Springboks I, I, this is going to sound biased, but if, if he'll go, I think they'll take Joe Marler. I was going to say exactly the yeah. same. I, I, yeah, I agree. It'd be whether he can he can face the trip. Yeah, and, 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 and away. that's a bit a bit that Lawrence's point about the tour is going to be in spades this time because, as I understand it, it's all in one bubble. There's mm. going to be very very little outside the hotel and the training ground. It's going to be like the cricket has been. It's going to be a long eight weeks. Maybe the the fact that Joe Marler has has given himself that kind of gap and not been part of England's bubble, which sounds like it was a pretty tough time. You know, maybe mm. that's given him the breathing space to maybe. go, you know what, I, I can do the Lions. Maybe doing both would have been too much for him. Let's let's move on to England now because, you know, the, the talk of the town at the moment is, is Eddie Jones and, and the, will he stay in the review? Because look, let's, be, let, let's just be very clear. It was a really disappointing campaign for England. They finished fifth. Uh, they lost to, to Scotland, to Wales and to Ireland for the first time. Uh, in many, many years. I think 1976 was the last time they did that and they've only done it five times in the championship. So it's been uh, it's been a poor campaign. I just want to remind people of, to be careful what they wish for, really. And and you guys will all know and will have a very strong view on this and I'm interested to see where you are. But Wales last year, I think David Walsh mentioned this in his, in his piece in the Sunday Times, Wales played 10 test matches last year, lost seven under Wayne Pivak. In fact, the only sides they beat were Italy uh, and Georgia. And everyone was suggesting that uh, Wayne Pivak was not the man to lead Wales forward, particularly after Warren Gatland. And of course, you know, in the space of um, an autumn campaign, he's gone from from zero to hero. Um, there were times in the last 24 months when Gregor Townsend came off the field, having watched his side get absolutely walloped uh, a few times. In fact, he had the whole issue with Finn Russell. Could he, can he actually manage players correctly? And I think his... his um, uh, tenure was under the spotlight. Um, Andy Farrell has taken time to win over the Irish public post Joe Schmidt era. Um, no one's really sure whether he had the credentials to take them forward. And they, you know, are you the right man for the job? Was a question he was constantly asked. Uh, and I think the performance that he his side put in against particularly England, I think, has, has banished that that theory. So, so where are we with Eddie Jones? Because <clears throat> I must remind all of you and myself as well that. Of any England coach, he has, a, he has the best win ratio, including Sir Clive Woodward, who I have to gently remind every time we're in the studio as well. But uh, clearly that's not good enough at the moment. Owen, you know, what's the timeline for this review and will it make any difference? Well, well first of all about his, his winning record, his record in the Six Nations is, um, is worse than Stuart Lancaster's was. And we, we sort of look at the Lancaster regime as a, as a, as a, as a poor period in England rugby. Well, hold on a minute. He's won. He was won three out of the last five titles. So you say you say it's a it's a worse ratio, but it's a ratio which has won titles rather than anything else. I'm not solely interested in people that you know that, that win titles, but I think it, it, it was. I don't remember. Oh, I, just, I was just tell, I just telling you statistically that he wins that, that Lancaster won more games, uh, had more wins per game than Eddie Jones did by um has done by. Uh, a reasonable margin. Eddie Jones is on sixty-six percent, and um, and Lancaster was on eighty percent. So I mean, 
uh, yeah, granted, Lancashire didn't win um, didn't win titles, but he won four out of five every single time. So it, that that's just some perspective. Uh, the review is um is going to be done. Uh, I suspect probably next week, because we were told early um, April, and they want to they want to um, sort of announce their findings um, mid April. So it's probably happening quite quickly. I, I think the, the, one of the um, things that concerns me about the review is that is they don't want to um, they don't want to tell anyone who's who's doing it. And the one thing that we need here is some transparency, because clearly you could bring a bring a load of people onto the review who are supporters or who who are work for the RFU or whatever who would be um, interested in in um in keeping um uh, continuity with what we've got and you, you you could have critics from the outside called Stuart Barnes and Stephen Jones and Owen Slot and that and then he'd lose his job so who's it going who's it going to be um why why not tell us and at least give the public some reassurance that there's going to be some independence uh, of, of opinion on it mark you've seen pretty much everything that's happened in rugby succession planning has never been the RFU's strong suit i think we can all agree on that when Clive Woodward lost his job or parted company in 2004, I don't think England won a title for the next 12 years. So it's all very well saying, you know, it's time for Eddie Jones to move on. But actually, the fact that they've got no idea who would replace him or what sort of structure would replace him suggests that it's, it's definitely not the time to move on. I mean, do you think there's a much bigger issue than just who coaches England right now? Uh, I do, yes. So let, 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 let's take the Eddie thing first. I'm not one of those people crying for his, his head. I think it's quite a tricky decision. It, there's a bit of a track record. It, you know, Eddie's coached a long, long time, largely successfully, but not entirely. They still, you know, they still block him going into Queensland after that season. And his time at Saracens was patchy, uh, to say the least. But nevertheless... He's got a lot of he's got a lot of trophies under his belt, but you are judged in England. The player base is so large. It's not. I don't accept the. I think it's a false analogy between, let's say, Gregor Townsend at Scotland or even Andy Farrell in, in, in Ireland. England player base is so big that you know that the, the bar is quite rightly higher, and fifth is is a long way below it. My issues with Eddie are one is selection, which I do always feel is the absolute key skill of a international coach even with all the time more time these days than they used to be in a way england got so many players selection becomes even more important than it does in some of the other countries and i i think he's been some of the selection decisions have been strange i'm not in a and i'm sorry george martin is going to be a great player but that just looks I'm not quite sure what the right word well, it look, is. It looks like he'd been on the port. That, you know, <laughs> well, it just looks like he's trying to make a point, which I don't think you do that in international selection, but there we are. And some of the communication stuff is just, it is just, just, just doesn't sit easily with people. But I think the really key thing is something England have never, ever got quite right. And this goes all the way back to Clive Woodward, who fought it like hell, and, and, and other people even before him. Unlike most other countries, the coach reports to the CEO. And, and, and in most sports, and in, most, and in lots of other countries, that is not the case. And we've, every time we've tried to bring it in, it's been fought against, funnily enough, by the incumbent coach. <laughs> I, I, I thought the best one was when Clive fought like tooth and nail not to have Chris Spice above him, and then wanted the job himself. I thought that was a, that was always a, that was a particularly once he was no longer the coach. I thought that was a particularly uh, interesting point of, of time. 
But this is really about accountability. It's about who holds the head coach to account in any sports organization? Whose job is it to assess and then recommend whether the coach should stay or should go? And, and the problem sports have always is if the CEO comes from a non-sporting background, that can often be quite tricky and difficult. And that's why an awful lot of sports will put a director of the particular sport in top load. So, for example, I use a, a sport. So Tracy Neville was the coach when England Netball won the Commonwealth Games, but um, there was a director of netball. In, in the organization and she was her boss and everybody knew that, but the coach still picked the team and, 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 and did the media and all that kind of stuff. And I still wonder whether we've quite got that structure right. And I think that's why it's succession planning then, you made the point Lance Longwick, is so difficult. You can't ask a person to plan for their own replacement. It just, doesn't work. Lawrence, can I ask you a question about the last few weeks uh, with, with, um, with some inside knowledge of Wasps? What's, um, do you understand what's hap- what happened with Paolo Adogwu and uh, a Wasp disappointed with that? Well, I mean, it uh, depends which, which way you look at it. I mean, Paolo Adogwu had a, <clears throat> had a terrific game. I mean, he, he's a player who's, who's jumped from club to club to club and never quite settled anywhere, maybe because the coaches felt they couldn't get the best out of him. It's pretty clear from the outside that Lee Blackett didn't see him as a top-class winger, but did see him as a, as a player who maybe could play in the centre. He, he, he produced a, a magnificent performance, which won Wasps the game against Bath, and, and Eddie Jones called him world-class. No disrespect. I mean, that is an insult to, to some world-class centres. You know, it, <laughs> I mean, he, he played well, admittedly, really well, but you know, to call him world-class publicly and said, yeah, we, you know, he, he can do things that no other player can do and we're going to have a real good look at him, and then, so I think the, the, the language you use it has to be measured. And I don't think in that context, it was very well measured. Then he, he brings him into the squad, primarily to stop him getting capped for Italy, and then doesn't pick him against Italy uh, when he's had a look at him in training. And then uh, parachutes Joe Marchant ahead of him. Because, um, you know, I said, if he was world-class five or six weeks ago, how is he suddenly not world-class now? Um, so I do think that, you know, to, to Mark's point, the selection has been baffling. It's it's been quite stubborn at times. It is the single most important criteria of, of, of any coach. And, and I don't think he's got it right all the time. And the more he hasn't got it right, the more he's dug his heels in and stuck with his get stuck to his guns. Um, you know, dropping players does make a difference, particularly when they've got over 50 caps. You get the best out of them. And if you don't, then they're no longer for playing international rugby. So uh, I just find it very strange indeed. I think, I think that the, the narrative around the selection is has been really odd. So Eddie has, has been introducing the, the notion that this England team are in transition, which was something that Conor O'Shea railed against just last week and, and had a go at all of us for suggesting that this young England team was in transition, when all that, all that we were doing was quoting Eddie Jones saying that, that England are in a period of transition. And when it was put to Eddie that this was the youngest team, you know, they made a big deal of this was the youngest team to reach the World Cup final, 2019, Eddie's brought the average age down by a year to 27. And Eddie's saying, well, I've got to get, I need, I need to know whether these players can make it through to the World Cup. Is there enough growth left in them? That, that's his perspective on, you know, can he get more out of Ben Youngers? Can he get more out of a George Ford? But you've got the director of performance at the RFU saying, be careful what, what you say about the transition. This is a young team. 
So there's a, there's a contradiction there. And, and on, on, on Mark's point about, about George Martin and, and why it felt like it was Eddie was making a point, I think that was backed up. If you watch the, the last episode of their in-house TV show called Inside Line, there's an extended passage in that 15 minutes where George Martin is being coached how to pick the ball up from the base of a ruck and drive the guard back or, or, or pick and go near the, near the try line, sorry. And it's, it feels like it goes on and on and on. And he's, he's practicing with Ellis Genge and Ellis Genge is giving him some tips on, on how to properly pick up and, and attack the defender. Like, this, this guy is supposed to be an international rugby player. Why, why have they spent this long period of what is a review episode of, of the Six Nations focusing on how they are coaching a, an international rugby player to do skills that you would expect him to have. And that's what and I think it's all part of this um, perception that he, Eddie's got to bring in all these young players. He's got to force this change through. And he does need to involve the team, but that happens in every team. And, and just the way that it happens with England under Eddie is, it, is a boom and bust. Uh, you don't see that with, with New Zealand. They have, a, they have a process to involve a, a team a lot more effectively without, without suffering the peaks and, the, and, and, and well, without suffering the troughs. And that's why I just think there's a lot of muddled messages going on from the, the team and from the RFU. The, the review that, that we talked about before, initially we were being told it would be seven to ten days. The meetings are already planned. They're not rushing anything forward, so there's no panic. And then Bill Sweeney says, well, actually, what's going to happen in May? But we recognise how urgent this is, so we brought it forward to April. And, you know, obviously transparency is really important, but we're not going to tell you who's on the panel. And it's like, just, uh, there's a lot of confusing narratives going on, I think, around the team. And it just, it, when, when I think that the, the, the future is actually fairly straightforward, they've got a, they've got a core of a, of a team that needs to be evolved. And some players are, have been undroppable for too long based on form, not, not on age or, or anything else. Uh, enjoy more rugby insight and analysis throughout the season with the Times and the Sunday Times. Get a subscription today and get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the ruck for more details. Again, some, some breaking news over the weekend that World Rugby has announced funding for two new franchises, Pacifica and uh, the Fijian franchise as well, to compete in Super Rugby from 2022 onwards. I mean, this is seismic news, really. It's exactly what the game has been calling out for for many, many years. Um, uh, just, to, just to remind people, 25%, quite a staggering number of professional players globally are from the Pacific Islands. And it's taken till 2021 for them to get the necessary funding. I, I was initially, I was really, really tickled by it because you, you, we would all like to see what would happen if um, the Pacific Island nations um, w- were able to, to um, be as good as they possibly could be. And they've been nowhere near it for, for reasons we've talked about plenty. But I started looking at that 1.2 million that World Rugby is putting into each of those teams a year. And I was thinking, well, I mean, that, that, that's great and everything, but that really is just Eddie Jones and Owen Farrell's income a year put together. So um, uh, may, may, maybe we shouldn't, um, maybe shouldn't go too overboard about this phenomenal um, bounty of generosity that's come their way. But, but if, if it gives them the opportunity 
to build as we think it can do. Because the, the problem with, with uh, the Pacific Islands at the moment is they, they, they find the young players because they like to play and they do have academies there. And they, there is a, a bit of a production line, but then there's very little in between that and the international game, which is why they kind of have to go abroad. So now, effectively, they won't have to go abroad. And there is a, there is a pathway, a seamless pathway that should go through to the top. And it will mean that the top players can play together almost all the time and they won't be lost so much. And so potentially it's brilliant. But I think we now have to go to Mark Evans. Who I, when I heard this news, I, I rang Mark because he knows almost more about rugby than Alex Lowe. I said to Mark, you know, you, 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 you've got the biggest brain in rugby. How, how, brilliant, is it? What is, how brilliant is this news? And, and Mark stroked his chin a bit and said, and said uh, pipe down, young fellow. You don't quite know everything you're talking about. A little harsh. I don't think I said that at all. That's not a direct quote. <laughs> a couple of things. People over this part of the world have really got to stop saying that New Zealand and Australia nickel the Pacific Island players because the vast majority of Pacific Islands are of heritage. They, they, they were born in New Zealand and they were born in Australia. It's a bit like saying Carl Sinclair should play for Jamaica, you know, even though, you know, where, where is it when he's from Wandsworth? You know, we've got to be very, very careful that we, 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 we understand the situation. However, it's still fair to say that to strengthen the islands on the world stage, having a super rugby based team in Fiji, because Fiji can probably just about support it economically, just about. I don't think, this is the point I was making to Owen on the phone, that the World Rugby Grant on its own will not be sufficient. It won't. Okay, one point million does not get you, even with lower incomes on the island, that will not get you with the travel and all the rest of it. It needs the government to put some money into it, which I think the Fijian government probably will. And it also means that they need to be given a share of the television revenue that the competition generates. Because the, the big problem of the islands is there's only a million people on the island of Fiji and a half of them are, Asia, are of Asian heritage who don't tend on usually to follow the game. So you've got half a million in one island and Samoa and, and Tonga are much, much smaller. So there is virtually no audience and therefore no broadcast revenue. So you are starting from a long, long way back. But I hear, and I, I have to declare an interest, I hear that, that there is, that I'm more optimistic than I have been for decades because there is some movement in New Zealand in terms of in that, in that, in that regard. And if they can get it up for 2022, at least one team. I think one team will be in New Zealand. I don't think there'll be a two teams on the islands. One will be in New Zealand. One will probably be on Fiji. If they can get through that, they'll need some private equity capital as well. They'll need three funding sources, government, private, and world rugby. And that's always been the case. If you could get those three pots together, you've probably got enough to have a decent, make a decent stab at it. But yeah. Mark, World Rugby told me that they wouldn't have announced this funding if they weren't if they didn't have it guaranteed that the other bits of funding weren't in place. Because if, if the others don't come into place, then World Rugby look pretty foolish. So, and admittedly, that has happened once or twice in our lifetime. So I, I was going to say that as a possibility. A World Rugby have been funding the islands for the last ten years without those partners. So, I'll, I'd like to know. And and secondly, the point you made is. 
I've heard it before. I'd still like to see the contract before. Okay. I, I, I'm so passionate about it that I don't want to jump too early. It's really, it is very, very good news. And it's, I think I said to you, pretty necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, and that's where I am with it at the moment. It's great news. I just hope it can be built on. Isn't there a, isn't, isn't there a lesson here as well for the for the for other areas of potential growth in the global game? Uh, and and I'm, I'm talking about the US in particular because I think the US will be granted, if they haven't been already, the opportunity to host the Rugby World Cup in 2032. Uh, I think Silver Lake, um, who's deal of buying a small percentage of the All Blacks is, is, is not a fait accompli. That has to be voted. And I know there's objection to that in New Zealand. But part of that deal will be them buying two ML, MLR franchises as well uh, and, and strengthening the growth trajectory of rugby in the US in the lead up to 2032. And I'm sure that they'll divert some of that Olympic funding too. And my question also is around Italy. You know, everyone, everyone looks at Italy and says, oh, you know, why can't they... Why can't they be the, good enough to be in the Six Nations? You know, just, just putting them in a tournament uh, and just expecting it to happen is not enough. If you, were to, if you were to award Italy a Rugby World Cup, for instance, and you were to do that in, a, in I don't know, eight to 12 years' time, and then you were to build a proper plan around that sort of tra- that, that trajectory towards the tournament, which involved government funding, which involved World Rugby funding, which involved a proper structure... I think Italy, and then it still failed. Then I think you'd have you know decent grounds for saying, well, we tried in Italy and it hasn't worked. But just to to employ a coach, expect him to wave his magic wand for four years, and then oh that didn't work, so let's just employ another coach. Uh, I just think it is is a crazy me- method. So I do think there's huge opportunity with this Pacific Island news. I think America is definitely another area that that world rugby should be looking at. I'm sure they are looking at, and Italy closer to home. You know, I think it's a huge opportunity that's currently being untapped and and missed. Well, trying to work out if I'm still going to be in a job when the World Cup goes to America. That's something that's something to aim at and to keep you sharp, isn't it? I I think it's almost a done deal. (laughs) I'd say 2031 in the USA is uh, almost a done deal. Everybody you talk to says it's 27 in Australia, it's 31 in the States. And the big difference here between is the states don't need capital. That that the one thing the United States has got many things, but one of the things it's got is there are huge amounts of capital um, swirling around that country, look, and they are prepared to invest and fail. I mean, they they don't care about leagues that try and fail. They 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 just see it as part of the part of the the the, the way that things are. I I I agree that Silver Lake's investment. Uh, once um, agreed, I think it will be, uh, will be a will be a tr- will be a bit of a trigger. And you now there's Australian investment in MLR already into the Los Angeles franchise. Now they're not short of capital. They're short of they're short of a comp- They are short of a competition. It's Italy. I wish we'd take the World Cup to Italy. I was arguing for it 20 years ago. One, it's got the stadia, it's got the population, but. The, what worries me is I know that Italy have been offered the Heineken Cup final a couple of times, which I thought would be a good start, and have, have said thanks, but no thanks. If we, gave, if we had just agreed to give Italy the World Cup every World Cup, um, would that make it all right to take them away from the Six Nations? Just as like balance it up a bit. So, so you're not going to be in the Six Nations, but we love your country, so we're just going to have the World Cup there every time. Would that be okay? I know that 
their performance in the Six Nations is, is really disappointing and it looks like there's no progress whatsoever. And I don't know enough about the, the detail of Italian rugby to really comment on that. All I do know is that we took, we have invested so much in Italy and this, it's, a, it's a large country uh, and there is a market and I, I'd be really loath to give up on that because two reasons. One, Georgia's the next best and Italy, Italy beat them every time they play them, right? That, that, that's the first point. And secondly, rugby hasn't got many countries with lots of people in them. You know, the argument that rugby is a, a game for small nations and minorities has something of the truth about it. And, and Italy, at least, there is a foothold. And I know it's frustrating. I know people hate it. Um, but I, I would be really low just to walk away from that after all, all that we've tried to put into it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. The the other massive area of 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 growth in the game is in the women's game, and England begin their defence of the women's Six Nations Championship against Scotland in Darlington. For the, I think they're going for their third Grand Slam in a row. Um, for the first time, the competition will be played in a in a separate window to the men, um, which in itself is unique. Uh, but there'll be a, because of a lack of fixtures, and this is one of the perennial problems of the women's game. Uh, they've split into two shortened formats of two different pools. And I mean, I guess, Alex, it, it probably, you know, no matter what we say about it, it probably still looks likely that, you know, there'll be two pools. England will probably meet France in the final and in the, in the decider, won't they? Yes, I think they will. I was talking to Giselle Mather last week, uh, Wasps Lady Director of Rugby, and she's, the way she describes it is this is the, the COVID Six Nations. It'll follow the similar format to the men's automations cut as you say two pools and then there's sort of finals day at the end i don't think the six i don't think the, the players and the and the countries involved actually want this format to continue because it's fewer matches but they do like the idea of having their own window which I, it allows them to breathe in their own space to, to get more attention uh, outside of, uh, of of the men's six nations but but one of the big issues is in the women's game is, is the disparity between the fully pro England team, the, the French team, who I think are technically semi-pro, but are, uh, are much more, much better funded. And they play in, in front of sellout crowds when, when crowds are allowed in. And down to, to Ireland and, and, and Scotland, who are, who are amateur, I, I believe, or certainly largely amateur, um, as, as international teams. And th- that's an issue It came up recently when, when it was announced that the Lions were going to to run a, um, a sort of feasibility study into the idea of running a, a, a women's Lions team and, and how, do you pick, how do you pick a Lions team to go on tour when uh, so many of the, of the players will have other jobs and are only semi-pro and, and would it be even just dominated by England because they're professional? All, all these issues that, that, that the women's game is, is trying to solve and it's, but the fact it's had to delay its World Cup by a year puts even greater emphasis, I think, on the Six Nations because it's a, it's a great chance for the... For these players to, to to take the international stage, they've waited so long for it, and I think some of the um, some of the Irish players haven't played at all since since lockdown. So um, it's 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 welcome, and we look forward to it. But there's a lot of growth to be done in, in the women's game. Agree with that, and and good luck to England and all the other teams taking part. Sarah Hunter, of course, back from long-term injury to be leading England. Before we go to our god or goddess of the week, uh, which will give you time to think about that, I want to just propel ourselves forward to this weekend because Europe is is back on the agenda. This this wonderful last 16 that we now have, um, you know, so slightly different format. And I guess slightly unique in the sense that, that we now have last 16 and we already know the draws for the for the quarterfinals as well. So, we, so we've got two weeks of European rugby, which might explain 
the reasons why Rob Baxter, uh, the director of rugby at Exeter, decided to uh, select what was effectively his second 15 choice um, in, in the Premiership last weekend is well within his rights because his champion side, Exeter European champions, will be facing Lyon on Saturday. Some mouth-watering ties, gentlemen. Leinster, too long, kicks us off on Friday. Gloucester, La Rochelle, Wasps, struggling uh, in the Premiership, take on the machine that is Claremont Averne up at the Rico. My pick of the, the, the ties was, it, it is Munster against Toulouse. I think uh, I think that's just an absolute belter. Toulouse, of course, beaten by Exeter in the semi-final last year. Can they go one better? The Exeter-Leon, uh, and then, of course, Racing, Edinburgh. I guess another intriguing one, Bordeaux-Begle against Bristol. Uh, Bristol flying high, but Bordeaux themselves going quite well. And then rounded off with, with Scarlet Sale. Mark, where... Where, where's um, where are your where are you going to cast your eyes over the weekend? I can't go past Munster to lose for the Tyler weekend, and that that is going to be an absolute belter. I think looking at the draw more generally, I think the French clubs look really well positioned. I, I can't see Gloucester beating La Rochelle, and I can't see Wasps beating Claremont, and I can't see Edinburgh beating Racing. Uh, I think those three will go through and. They don't play each other in the way the way they draw is, is has been drawn. So, um, in in advance, as it were, I think Exeter will beat Leon, and, and and they're so hard to beat at home. But then they've got to play Leinster or Toulon, which is going to be an that will be the quarterfinal tie of the round. So it, look, it's 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 really interesting. Will Bristol beat Bordeaux away? That would be a hell of a win. That really would be a hell of a win if they can do that. That would show me that they really, I think they probably are already, but that would be a real step up for them. Well, they certainly, uh, they certainly won, having been having been losing in the last minutes of, of, mm. of games in consecutive weeks. They've shown this kind of ability to dig deep when not necessarily playing at their best. And as you say, they're going to need to do that. But I think I'm inclined to agree with you. England's English club rugby's best chance probably starts at Exeter and, and finishes at Bristol. And I think if they if they make it through, both of them will will end up with home semi-finals, which again is is enormous mm-hmm. in terms of that. So mm-hmm. you know the incentive and the carrots are there for both those two sides. Slotty, where 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 are you uh, where are you heading? I mean more than two miles up the road this weekend. Yeah probably Saracen's Doncaster. That's where the, the big round <laughs> actually sorry that that's a, that's a couple of weeks away. Uh, I don't know. You, you, you've you've named all the all the really big games. Um, I normally go to a game on a on a Sunday and and, and do the couch potato version on the Saturday. So um, so ho- ho- you, you, you can have the Challenge Cup then. I mean, there's Harlequins Ulster maybe on 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 the Sunday uh, on Sunday the fourth. Um, I mean, there is some some big ties in the other. Now you're teasing me because it's another walk away, isn't it? <laughs> okay, that's so that's me decided. I'll do I'll do uh, Harlequins on that's at eight o'clock on Sunday night actually, isn't it? That's um. <laughs> That worked quite nicely. A whole day off, and then if you can survive the food coma from Sunday lunch, you should you should be able to get down there in time. Arthur, where 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 are you where are you heading to, or where 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 are your eyes looking? I, I like the Bordeaux Bristol fixture because I went to the I covered the reverse game in the in the Challenge Cup semi final last season, which Bristol came from thirteen points down and then won it in extra time, and it was a great occasion. It got them to their their first European final, uh, which they then went on went on to win. So. Having seen that game and, and been been Aston Gate filing on on deadline in a, in a game in extra time, <laughs> it kind of it sticks with me. So uh, I'm quite keen on on watching that game on on Sunday, which obviously we can't go to 
because it's in France. So um, that will be a, uh, a sofa job on, on Sunday afternoon. So uh, other than, than the obvious games that, that you've all mentioned, that's, that, that's the one that intrigues me because I think it's, a, as Mark said, it's a big test to go and do that away from home, um, even without crowds and, and all that kind of stuff. It's a test, it's a test of Bristol, Bristol's metal and um, they passed it in the European Challenge Cup semi last season. Champions Cup knockout um, is, is a different matter. So yeah, I'm, I'm keen for that one. Well, listen, we've got some amazing rugby, whatever happens coming up over the next couple of weeks. And if it gives us the kind of dramatic finishes that we've seen in the recent Six Nations, we'll all be very, very happy. Gentlemen, we will finish with our God or Goddess of the Week. I'm sure you've, uh, you've all been thinking uh, long and hard. Alex, how about you kick off? My nomination is John Inverdale. I wish I'd said that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can I go, Lawrence? Can I go first? No, 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 no. There's a lovely interview with John in the Sunday Times, which will obviously still be available on online with with Stephen Jones. He loves rugby. First of all, we play rugby. He's he's now he's step, stepping down from BBC's rugby coverage because he's been invited to join the RFU Council and having, as he said, having sort of thrown stones from the outside and caused the change. He's now been given an opportunity to to step in and try and try and make things better representing community rugby. I just had these great memories of him presenting rugby special when I was growing up. And in fact, one of the things that, that sticks to mind is, as a very amateur broadcaster, as, as everyone who listens to The Rock can tell, I remember being at the, at the Open with my dad up at Troon. My dad knows him a little bit. And he was walking down the fairway with his big battery pack on, headphones, clipboard in front of him, hosting Five Lives coverage from the, from the middle of the fairway, linking from John Murray on one green to... Andrew Cotter on another green, and he, he, he threw over to, to a reporter, wandered over to the um, to the ropes, had a quick chat to my dad and I, and then just sort of put his hand up, caused a halt, brought, brought a halt to the conversation, threw back to another reporter on another green, and then carried on the chat again. And the ability to just ooze calm and control of this broadcast while he was in the middle of the of the fairway having a chat to to a few people um, along the rope was just just remarkable. And um, great rugby guy. A great, great broadcaster. So yeah, wonderful choice. Owen, as the as the chief rugby correspondent for the Times, you can go second. Well, I'd just like to say I'm really cross that Alex came up with that John Inverdell first because I I was going to say him, but uh, but I'll now. But um, my second my second nomination is um even though the, the French tossed their uh, Six Nations away so stupidly, um uh, I, I've just been uh, slowly uh, falling deeper and deeper in love with one, one of the French players. And, and it's not Dupont or Jalibert or Fiku or any of the ones, the ones that everyone else just loves. I am just increasingly smitten with Julian Marchand, their hooker. I just, I just want him to, I just want, I want him to, him to be my mate. I want it, I want him to come round for Easter and I want him to, to, uh, I, I just think he's an outstanding player. I couldn't believe he got picked out of Camille Shat, but but now I get it every time. He can he's got he's got all the skills. He can he can do the basics. He can turn over ball. He can pass. He can run. He can come round to mine for Easter and celebrate what it is like being a great French rugby player. Mark, just get rid of this man love and put bring some common sense to proceedings, really. <laughs> well, I mean, I I'd go with John Imadell as well. But if I wasn't, I, I I had about three. I think. I think Hamish Watson is, uh, that's maybe not just for this week. I just think he's been absolutely top class through the first, through the whole competition. Um, and, and consistency, I've always been a great, I mean, you, anyone can put out the odd flash game together, but to do it week in after week, after week, after week, is, is just incredibly impressive. But 
yeah, if it if it if it wasn't if it wasn't John, I'd go I'd go for Hamish Watson with a with a with a mention for Damian Penno, but only because I used to remember as a two-year-old running around Bramley Road after his dad. And it's just nice to see the generations come through. And he has played uh, in a very good French side. He has played some terrific stuff on the wing. And he's pretty handy in the centre, but he can't get in there. Yeah, listen, I, I think that's a wonderful choice. And, and I've got a bit of a man love going on with the performance of a player who hasn't played in the Six Nations. But I was down at uh, Ashton Gate for, for, for the Bristol game. And I, I had no idea how good... Or, or I was just amazed at how well Danny Kerr played in that game. Um, oh, exactly. And, and I, my God of the week goes to Danny Kerr because when a player gives up international rugby uh, and he's had a long innings and really kind of knows that his, that, his, that his goose is cooked and he's probably unlikely to get picked again for, for, for his international side, but has still got the ability to lift his performance to the very top of international rugby. I mean, he looked like a, a real top-class player. And who knows, he may end up, raising the attentions of, of, of Warren Gatland and the Lions coach. But I think my God of the week goes to, and there was many, many good performers in that game, but just his all-round performance, Danny Kerr on the losing side for Harlequins. Oh, some great nominations there. Danny Kerr, spot on, Lawrence. Yeah, Hamish Watson, but uh, Julian Marchand, actually, I'm just sticking with him, yeah. <laughs> That's why you're the chief rugby correspondent. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, over-emotional today. My thanks to Owen Slot, Alex Lowe and our special guest Mark Evans. The Ruck returns on Monday with Europe very much on our minds. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and you can subscribe on Acast, iTunes or your usual podcast device. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.